0: a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America and the right side must win. It's time for America. Can we talk with Debbie George Addis on America? Can we talk? We talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America. Can we talk starts now and good evening and welcome. I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome
1: to my show. In case you didn't watch the news today, the French elections were held, and I want to talk about those elections, but really how they tie into how we in America think about advancing and explaining conservative policy. The outcome of the election in France was that Emmanuel Macron, who is labeled as the moderate, uh, got 65 percent of the vote. Now, they're still counting, but last I left the House was in that range. Macron had 65 percent to Marine Le Pen had 35 percent, and just so you, as a backup, I will say that I think the three issues that predominated in the French elections, they were very prevalent also in the discussion in England on the Brexit vote, uh, and they were very prevalent in the American elections, the 2016 presidential elections. And I want to run through them because I think this election has a lot of lessons for us. One is that... They talked a lot about globalization, and this globalization idea, as applied in France, is really their connection to the EU. They talked about the EU, globalization, losing jobs. They talked about national identity. And on the subject of national identity, you know, it's been a really tough thing, and we talk about this on the show a lot, and I want to talk about some more tonight— People blur words such as national identity, nationalization, populism, and then they get into questioning whether it's some form of fascism. I want to talk about the right idea of claiming nationalism as a right idea, as a form of patriotism. Then the last issue is really how they deal with terrorism. And as all of you likely know, in France, they've had a very tough time in their national security and terrorism issues, border security and all of that. So I'm going to just give you some quick information points about France. In 2015, And so France has had a large influx of Islamic refugees from northern Africa and from Syria and other places in the Middle East due to the war caused by ISIS. But in France, they've had 2015, six Islamic terror attacks, 149 people killed— 2016, 12 terror attacks, 90 people killed. 2017, so far, we're not even halfway through the year, five attacks, three killed. Emmanuel Macron, the the centrist who won, his quote about after a a brutal terror attack, I think it was the one the Champs-Élysées, his quote was, terrorism is an imponderable problem and will be part of our daily lives for the years to come. That's not much of a solution, but that's what the guy said. Contrast with Marine Le Pen, who is a member of the uh, National Front Party, a far more conservative party, she spoke about immediately deporting all foreign nationals on the terror watch list, and she talked about— The notion that we have to uh, give the control, we have to have control of our national borders, we have to know who's coming in and attack the evil at its roots, that is to say, her word was communitarianism, but being communist, um, and the development of Islamic fundamentalism. So her remarks were painted by her opponent uh, Macron as well as the media as being intolerant and racist, and um, and so she so that was a, a huge point in their in their election. Another one was globalization, national identity, populism, patriotism. Macron, the guy who won, actually said the words in a speech in this election cycle: nationalism is. War and he was talking about the French having a large graveyards where they had the battle people buried from World War Two, and he was he was denigrating the idea of French national pride. He's far more, in fact, he speaks openly about proudly being a Europeanist, part, loves being part of the European Union, was uh, supporting it and critical of Le Pen, who was saying, you know, we have to have secure borders. We may have to relook at our deal with the European Union. And she was far more willing to speak, as Donald Trump did, about, you know, this, there's a French identity. There's a, there's a, a reason um, a French identity should be defended and protected. And so the other um, aspect of all this, um, most—this election, which was just really, uh, you know, national attention, international attention was um, focused on this election, was that Le Pen, she did have consistently in her uh, election, she talked about France first, French first. Look out for the French first, very similar to Donald Trump. So the last thing that happened was there was success in labeling by the Amer- by the left, by the media, and by uh, her opponent, calling her policies racist. Now I will say that her party had— has a history of racism, so I'm not claiming she's um, pure of all that, but they were able to characterize her argument that we need to be careful about Islamic fundamentalism growing in France. We need to crack down who comes here. We need to send—she actually talked about sending, uh, kicking out of the country people who are not citizens who are on the Islamic terror watch list. That was one of her ideas. And so here are the points I think every all of us should take from the French elections. You know, Macron won, and he won handily. And, um, you know, the French are kind of putting up with—they or they have become pretty tolerant of this unbelievable spate of, of violence from radical extremism, uh, and, and radical Islamic extremism, and really no, no parent policy to deal with it. Here's my four points. Western civilization must deal with the question, the nationalism identity question, do our values, are they, are, are they unique and important enough— to stand for them, even if it means standing against globalization. Number two, we have to do a better job defining what good and right patriotism means. Number three, we can never agree that having secure borders or defined borders is a far-right crazy idea. And number four, we can never agree that protecting our country from radical Islamic jihadists can somehow mean you're a racist. Can't go there. Can't do that. So coming up next after upcoming break... I want to talk about what's happening in Venezuela and how anyone who could watch Venezuela can still be on board with Bernie Sanders and socialism. This is Debbie Georgiatis, America Can We Talk, don't go away.
0: The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org.
2: America guarantees each eligible adult citizen the right to vote. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, a 501c3 public interest law firm, is dedicated entirely to election integrity, to assuring that voter rolls include names of only citizens eligible to vote, and that protections are in place to prevent voter fraud of all kinds. The Public Interest Legal Foundation discovered that more than 1,000 non-citizens enrolled to vote in Virginia in just eight counties, and in Philadelphia, felons as well as non-citizens are on the voter rolls. Non-citizens have been registering to vote and voting
1: On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics, we have the responsibility, when politicians propose solutions, to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgettis on America Can We Talk?
3: Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today.
4: Can you hear us now? Can you hear and welcome you back to
1: America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Addis. So it's the first Sunday of the month. We have our Millennial Roundtable here, which is always a fun thing, and um, I've had both of these gentlemen with me before in the show. I have Drew Wicker and Grant Wolf here. They're both SMU students, and i gonna give you one minute to quick tell what you do at SMU. You have different roles in conservative organizations. If you want to go first, Grant?
5: Sure. I serve as the president and founder of the Young Americans for Freedom chapter at SMU. We're a national conservative organization founded by William F. Buckley in the 1960s. And uh, we serve to educate uh, students about the uh, values and goals of the conservative political ideology on campus. Drew Wicker.
6: And I am the president of SMU College Republicans. I also have the privilege of sitting on the cabinet for the state board. um, And I serve as the director of chapter development for the entire state. And so one of the things that we've really honed in on is this idea of promoting our values on campus, educating our people, and Educating them on why conservative ideals are the best for that and then transferring that and using the Republican Party as the vessel for that and bringing the Republican Party back to where it's supposed to be at. And I think that we've had a lot of success with that on campus.
1: I love that. Okay. Plus, I'll tell our listeners, if you recall, I think it was two months ago that I had them on the first Sunday of the month. And um, honestly, they're so well-informed. I was trying to be really careful what issues, whatever issue it was, they were right on it. They already understood it. So this is great. I want to go back. I did my first five tonight on the French elections. But really, the lessons for America from those um, French elections, I thought one of the biggest ones was... That Marine Le Pen, in trying to say, we need to protect this country from from radical Islamic terror, I mean, those people are are beleaguered. The numbers I read earlier, they have had attack after attack and death, but somehow that message did not resonate with the French people. And I think it was in part because she was painted, as and we were talking in the break about the, the, be very careful in using terminology, but she was painted as a nationalist, which they meant as a bad word, or a populist, which I think is another word that people people attribute to Trump and they attribute to her and populism is not the same thing as nationalism. It's not the same thing as patriotism, but I think she got hurt by that. So you, one of you was saying, what is the the denigrating takeaway in the term nationalist that you thought that people didn't like
5: about her? One of you, Grant, you were saying that, right? Yeah, I think the people misunderstand and Drew was talking about over the break that they, the French have a different perception of the term nationalism, but The most important thing, I think, is the issue of national sovereignty and what Marine Le Pen advocated as far as France's ability to control its own borders, to make its own legislation about who and who not to allow into the country. You talked about people who are on the Islamic terror watch list being able to remove them if they're not French nationals. These are things that are that are should be discussed on the, on the forum of national security policy. This isn't about hating certain groups of people or uh, placing the priorities of other nations above your own. This is simply an issue of national security policy, and I think she suffered from being unable to rebut the attacks of the political left, painting her and, and moving the forum of discussion simply to, is she a fascist, yes, uh, in, exactly. instead of talking about the substance of the issue.
1: Exactly. She was good on the issues of uh, wanting border security, wanting to know who's there. I mean, I will say to our listeners who are thinking, because I had some people comment on my Facebook page, but she's uh, almost a socialist. She's a big government person. Okay, fine. She is. I'm not arguing about her economics. But I'll tell you something, folks. If you don't get radical Islam under control in your country, your economic policy is not going to matter. It's not going to matter if you have violent attacks, if you're terrorized, if you can't leave your home— Your economic policy isn't going to matter. So you have to get that right, too. And to both of you, we were talking on the break, and I wanted to just elaborate on it. I love the word patriotism. And about America, to me, it means it's not about the color of skin, the the lines of geography. I mean, the country matters, but it's about ideas. And I think in Western Europe, a lot of people, are are, there's the same kind of renaissance of or renewed recognition of we have a Western civilization culture here. That we're losing, and I think that was what she, – she, Marine Le Pen wasn't maybe as eloquent as she – but I, I had a feeling she kind of got that.
6: Yeah, I would 100 percent agree, and I think that it's very important, as Grant mentioned, as you mentioned, to recognize that they have two very distinct definitions of patriotism and nationalism in Europe. If you read a quote by Charles de Gaulle, I think it sums it up perfectly. Patriotism is when love of your own people comes first. Nationalism, when hate for people other than your own, comes first. And I think that that's really how they branded Le Pen. And I think but what you see in Brexit, what you see in the French people, I think what you see even in Germany and the people that I was able to talk to this winter, it's genuinely a concern for their fellow man and seeing these threats come in from outside and wanting their best for their people.
1: Yeah, I love that too. Okay, I know I said before the break that we were going to talk about Venezuela, but I changed my mind. In the second hour, we're going to talk about, uh, because the Venezuela situation is just in a it's just a tragic meltdown of, of starvation and poverty and desperation and i'm thinking it'll work better in our second hour because we're gonna we will have been talking about obamacare because nancy pelosi had a quote honestly goodness you might think she was a socialist no, who could say that okay but back to this i want to hit this a little more because you know this is part of the, the problem that donald trump has had in con- serious conservative circles Part of it, he's kind of earned the fact that he has this problem because he's not as eloquent or articulate as he can, be, as he could be as, as Ronald Reagan was. But he's trying to say this restored, you know, strength and vibrancy of the American economy, restored notion of strong borders and a rule of law and and you know, protection for the American people. Those are all things that me, to me, they fit in patriotism. They fit squarely in the job of the president, but he's had some of the same pushback that Le Pen has gotten kind of characterizing him as, you know, xenophobic or just kind of, you know, unenlightened, not recognizing the world's full of beautiful, lovely cultures and America's no better than anybody else. And I think he kind of knows, yeah, we are better actually, not the people, but the ideas that form the country. This has been his problem.
5: Yeah. And I think, um, I think President Trump does suffer from sometimes an inability to communicate those ideas. But that is really the core of the issue, is that is Western civilization and th- that set of values and ideas superior to other ones? And I think if we were yes. having this conversation 15, 20 years ago, that you would have more people who are now on the other side of the aisle agreeing with you. I was watching Sen- then-Senator Obama um, on a clip from I believe it was 2006 or seven from Congress talking about the importance of securing the border and eliminating the ability of illegal immigrants to work in the United States. Um, so I mean people have have changed their position with the political tide on this one. I wanted to highlight something just quickly. The State Department <clears throat> in the last couple of weeks put out an international travel alert for the eurozone um, and highlighting the danger potentially posed to Americans traveling abroad in Europe. Um, due to the ongoing threat of terrorism. I mean, you don't think of Europe as being, or you didn't used to think of being a hotbed for terrorism and a dangerous place for Americans. But that is now the reality. And I think that, you know, like you said, the Brits understood this, the stakes in Brexit. And I think people across Europe are hopefully starting to wake up. I don't know what, it'll be interesting to see what the results of what happened in France today are going forward. But the danger posed to Western civilization by Islamic fundamentalism is going to be something we have to reckon with. And if the left in Europe doesn't recognize it, it's going to blindside them.
1: Okay, this is, it's amazing you said that because one of my good friends, um, I'm pretty active on Facebook. And by the way, our listeners, we have a great Facebook page from which we are live streaming this show. The Facebook page is America Can We Talk? We always live stream on Facebook. And I had someone comment about as soon as the election results were announced in France, said, well, there goes tourism to France. And you know, it's a really shocking thing that, that does not occur to people, that we're we're kind of we're embracing the ideas of the guy who won, Macron, just saying, I mean, he said, it's an imponderable, it's going to be with us for years. It was a very resigned, well, what are you going to do? And in fact, he had another quote, well, you can't put them all in jail. I'm like, I don't know why not. <laughs> Can you explain that? But literally, there was just this kind of weakness and defenselessness, and it was kind of like he doesn't get— why Western civilization, at least what used to be Europe, is a better thing, so he doesn't see it as a as a good enough thing to justify standing for it's it's really painful because you know I'll tell you in college i um took a semester in Kenya and east africa and and it was you know. Pretty, it was very fun and went all, over, went all over East Africa and had a great time. But my parents, at the time, I said, yeah, I'm going to go on the semester to Kenya. My dad is like, don't they have one in France? <laughs> like, I mean, I remember having this discussion, like, really, you have to go to East Africa. It seems scary to him. But anyway, you know, this is a, a huge change for, you know, Western civilization, for people to start to think we're worried about security in a place that was not formally Islamic country, it, it was this was a a Christian Judeo Christian based Western Europe, and it's and it's uh, it's changing. And I just I, I feel sad for the French people because the other quick thought we only have thirty seconds left, but maybe they thought and I saw I read about some voters who said, "Look, I don't like Macron." But I think that maybe Le Pen is racist, and that's a reason not to vote for her. And that's good. But, I mean, you don't want—but, I mean, maybe there was a, some other shot somebody else that could have had, but where they ended up, these two, now we have Macron. We'll have to see how he handles the dangers that are, are presented in France by Islamic terrorism, because this was a big election saying we don't seem to mind too much. Okay, right. we've got to head off to our break. But after we come back from the break, we have joining us the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, Tom Giovanetti, is here in studio with us. And um, he is just a prolific source of knowledge on many substantive policy areas. We're going to hit Obamacare, the budget, and the FCC. Don't go away. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are tens of thousands of Heritage members and supporters in North Texas alone. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates on the fight for America from Heritage President Jim DeMint, plus exclusive invitations to conservative events right here in Dallas or wherever you are in America. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org.
3: If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, That's IWF.org.
0: Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights, energy taxes education or criminal justice the foundation works to translate ideas into real change the texas public policy foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research it is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country you can help texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in america visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more
2: The Public Interest Legal Foundation is fighting nationwide and in Texas to ensure that only Americans pick American leaders. We are actively litigating high-impact cases to clean up voter rolls and protect the ballot box. If you do not want your vote canceled out, visit publicinterestlegal.org to join us in the fight to restore integrity to American elections. Protect your vote. Visit publicinterestlegal.org today.
1: Welcome back to America Can We Talk. As I mentioned before our break, we have a great guest. He's a friend and a guest joining us tonight in studio, Tom Giovanetti. And um, first of all, may I just say, your last name is Italian, right? Yes, it is. I have said Giovanetti all this time. that I heard you introduce yourself, and you don't even say G. You say Giovanetti. No,
7: it's pronounced Jovanetti like J O E. Okay. But, you know, when you have a name like that, you turn your head at anything close.
1: <laughs> so, like George I'm, not, I'm
7: not picky. Yeah, you know, right? You know. I do. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, I want to get jump right into this because I I will tell you I've been scanning the news sites and I'm I'm just kind of constantly reading news and, and watching. I sometimes spy on CNN and then I watch Fox News, but. On the subject of the Obamacare repeal, I want to make sure we can get through uh, what I think are really crucial th- points to be able not just to understand but be able to talk about and tell your friends. So where we stand right now is that the House actually passed a version a, a version after much hand wringing and 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 fussing, passed a version of repeal of Obamacare and so that 's been passed. The bill is now over in the Senate, and the American left is on fire arguing that Republicans are all sorts of terrible things they will say but with a particular point they I want to talk about is they're claiming that the uh, repeal bill as written will essentially deprive people of, with pre-existing health conditions deprive them of insurance and I, I can uh, I you're way better than I in describing policies so Tom tell us the truth Are pre-existing condition people just sunk
7: no they're not in fact in fact in the Republican legislation that passed, It's safe to say that no one loses their health care coverage. Now, it may vary from state to state how that works because of the compromise that allowed something to actually pass the House. But, you know, a lot of times people don't really even understand what Obamacare is. And so if you don't understand what it is, it's hard to understand the changes Republicans made to it, right? So the way I try to explain this to people is this. Imagine that the federal government passed a law that said strawberries have to be gold-plated. Okay, now stay with me. Okay, imagine the federal government said strawberries have to be gold plated. Well, the first thing that would happen is the strawberry farmers would scream bloody murder because they would say, No one's going to buy gold plated strawberries, no one can afford it. So the federal government could say, Well, we'll fix that. We will mandate, we will legally require everyone to buy gold plated strawberries. Okay, well, that makes the strawberry farmers happy, but now consumers say, I can't afford gold plated strawberries. Okay. So then the federal government says, that's okay, we'll subsidize your purchase of strawberries. And essentially, this is what Obamacare does to health insurance, okay? Obamacare says, we're going to require all health insurance to be gold-plated. We're going to require to cover everything, every condition, everybody, pre-existing conditions, your kids up to age 26. It's got to cover everything. Well, the health insurance industry says that will drive up premiums so high no one will buy them. So the federal government says, that's okay. We will legally require everyone to buy health insurance. And if they don't, we will penalize them. And then the health insurance say, okay, But then consumers like you and me say, we won't be able to afford it. And so the government says, don't worry. We will subsidize it. So this is essentially what Obamacare is. It's three things. It's expensive insurance mandated. It's a legal requirement to buy it. And then it's subsidies to help you buy it. Now, in the original Republican bill that did not succeed earlier this year, all the Republicans did was mess around with the second and third part of that. All they did was mess around with the subsidies and the mandate. They didn't do anything about the things that make it expensive in the first place. Title I. Exactly. Yep. All, all the, the, the pre-existing conditions, all this kind of stuff. Okay, They didn't touch the insurance part. And that's why people like us said this is a bad bill because it's not going to actually solve the problems that are driving up costs. So now what the Republicans have done is they've come back and said, here's what we're going to do. On a state-by-state basis, we will let states waive themselves out of those requirements. So Texas could say, uh, we want a waiver from the requirement to cover preexisting conditions. We want a waiver to cover for, for the requirement to cover this and this and this. Okay, And if that's granted, then you would expect premiums in Texas would come down. But then the question becomes, so what do we do about people with preexisting conditions? And what would happen is they would go into what's called a high-risk pool. And the high-risk pool is subsidized by the government. Federal government. Federal government. It's also probably going to end up being sub- cross-subsidized to some degree by private insurance companies. But the idea is if you are very, very sick, if you have a child with a very, very expensive condition, if you have a pre existing condition, we're going to literally take you out of the normal insurance, insurance market so you don't distort that market. And we're going to put you in these high-risk pools. Now, we used to have high-risk pools, and they mm-hmm. used to work fairly well. Uh, But what the Republicans have done is created what they call invisible high-risk pools. You won't even know you're in a high-risk pool. To to oversimplify, let's say that you have AIDS, okay? And so you check the box on the insurance, I have AIDS, right? Checking that box will put you in this invisible high-risk pool, and your coverage essentially will be subsidized by the federal government. Now, hardcore purists say we shouldn't have that. Okay We should really have just a just a free market in health insurance, and you know you buy it if you want it, you don't buy it if you don't want, it, et cetera, et cetera. This is far from that, but it is a very significant step away from the Obamacare mandates that cover the whole country and again, if you're in a state that doesn't waive, your premiums are probably not going to come down, but if you're in a state that does waive, you have a right to think that premiums will come down, but yet people with preexisting conditions will still get coverage, and they won't even know that they're in a high-risk pool.
1: Okay. That was a brilliant explanation, and I really loved it. And I mentioned I chimed in on Title I because the four big parts of Title I that a lot of conservatives were concerned about in the original Obamacare and that even when the amendments came along or the changes came along that the uh, current Republican Congress tried to put in place, and as you mentioned a moment ago, they did not really at first deal with these. Right. It was uh, community rating which is, has to do with pricing. It had essential benefits. Which you were just describing a list of things you must cover. This is why men have to cover, have by policies that cover pregnancy care, right. or other unnecessary things. Guaranteed issue, which relates to, this means you must issue a policy, existing conditions and 26 year olds. So, T- covering 26-year-olds. Right. So those all,
7: are the original sins of Obamacare. Yes, That's what yes. makes it so expensive.
1: So are all of those now subject to this waiver thing on a MacArthur amendment?
7: That's my understanding. Yes, that they are.
1: All of them. So yes. you can just pull away from that. Well, this is a really great thing because, you know, there's this idea in federalism that you allow states to be the laboratory of ideas and right. they try different things. So you'll have, I'm going to guess, states like California will not have not embrace the idea of waivers. They will stay under the federal law. I right. am guess Texas will. So we'll have really a little bit of competition of ideas potentially between states right
7: in theory after a couple years, let's just assume first of all that this actually happens because <laughs> we're long we're a long way from the senate agreeing to that but under this construction after a couple of years you would expect that there would be states where premiums have come down and there would be states where premiums have not come down and it would be smacking you right in the face and showing you this is the cost of having these kinds of high mandates Interestingly enough, even before Obamacare, there were states that had community rating, and so their premiums were already high. So when Obamacare first became law, there were states where the premiums did not go up very much because they already had some of those kinds of mandates. It was in states that did not have those kind of mandates where you saw the premiums going up 60 and 70 percent. In freer market type states. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. With fewer mandates.
1: Okay. And community rating, again, I know we talked about this I don't know how many times on this show, but just to be clear, community rating has to do with pricing for policies. And so I always give the example, if you are a 70-year-old diabetic, overweight smoker, you are a higher risk for an insurance company to issue you a policy than if you're a 20-year-old, perfectly healthy, never took you know drugs or alcohol or anything, smoked, uh, Olympic athlete. But insurance company would like to price their policies based on the risk that you present. But community pricing, the, the term or concept community pricing was trying to force insurers to, to have a range of prices for the, the lowest to the highest-priced policy. Generally speaking, related correlated to age, but it was lowest to highest-priced. So community rating, the only change in the original repeal effort uh, under Obamacare, it was a 3-to-1 ratio. The new bill, uh, the Republicans' effort was 5-to-1. Right, But that's for states that don't waive, that's 5-to-1 is still in there.
7: Yes, that's Absolutely. So moving from a 3-to-1 to 5-to-1 to ratio is still an improvement. It, it, it at least allows a creation of more gradations. Yeah. So, for instance, you might expect that under a 5-to-1 rating, a young, healthy person's insurance would be lower than it is right now. I mean, we saw this, you know, even in my own organization at IPI. Uh, you know, we saw young, very young married couples for whom insurance was just dirt cheap for years and years and years. And that insurance suddenly became extremely expensive because under Obamacare, because you have that three-to-one ratio, you essentially have the young subsidizing the health insurance of the elderly.
1: Right, which is what we have like 40 seconds in a segment left, but I want to turn, and we come back to, um, I want to talk a little bit more about Obamacare, but really how the Democrats think they have an election year 2018 issue out of this bill, and how we, on the conservative side, have to be ready to message, explain, if I could just ship you around, Tom, to every neighborhood or every home in America, <laughs> and just give you a little spiel. But seriously, people have to be able to explain this stuff, because the Democrats think they have found the weak spot, the Achilles heel of the Republican Party, that we're going to be dead in the water in 2018. The truth is, Republicans won the control of the U.S. House in 2010, largely because of Obamacare. Won the Senate in 2014. Don't get frightened by the Democrats. We're on the winning side. This is Debbie George Ass, America Can We Talk with Tom Giovanetti in studio. Don't go away.
3: America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. the National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition and the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's think tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and if necessary legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit firstliberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans. In the workplace, public schools, your church, the military and more. That's firstliberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to firstliberty.org now.
1: Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis, and as I told you earlier, I have in studio Tom Giovanetti who is a president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, IPI. And I want to urge you, before we go off of this, back into Obamacare for a moment. It's IPI.org, right? That's right. Okay, want well, I'm sure it was, if I... I dot anyways, .org. we have one of
7: those great, simple, short URLs that everybody <laughs> <Yes>. wants.
1: <laughs> and actually, it's a great one. I do to encourage you, all of our listeners, to go to that, to read their articles, because they're written in really simple, clear, plain English, even though they're substantive and very helpful. So great website and a great organization, IPI.org. OK, so, Tom, we were talking about the Obamacare repeal. And, you know, right now it sits in the Senate. And there's a lot of talk about whether in the Senate side you have conservatives who are going to allegedly try to chip away and and do more and more peeling back of Obamacare. And there are the more—and I'm talking all on the GOP side. And then on the GOP side, you have the more moderates who are concerned about some of the provisions and want to change it. So I don't know if you've been in touch with anyone. Do you have any notion what's going to happen in the Senate? Any likely
7: changes? Well, what we've heard from the Senate so far is this big pushback against the House bill. It's basically been, thank you very much for your opinion— we will write our own legislation. Oh, no. And that's kind of what you expect uh, from the Senate. The Senate you know, has a little bit of a superiority complex when it comes, <laughs> to, the, when it comes to the House. But, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic because for at least the last three elections, Republican voters have been motivated by getting rid of Obamacare. And Republican voters in at least the last three elections have come out, and they have created this tidal wave of support that has allowed these Republicans to get elected. Yes, But it's interesting because not every Republican candidate was running on a promise to repeal Obamacare, and particularly in the Senate. You have Republicans in the Senate who were quite happy for the voters to sweep them into office, but that doesn't mean they feel any obligation to do some sort of Obamacare repeal. And, and I expect whatever comes out of the Senate, you know, it, it may actually be better in a few ways here and there than what came out of the House, but it is probably not going to be as substantial as what came out of the House.
1: OK, one of the issues that arose in this Obamacare repeal effort had to do with the great expansion of people who essentially get their health care through Medicaid. Right. And that's one of the reasons I think some Republicans in the Senate are saying, look, I don't want to be responsible because right now this bill says I believe this 2020 is a cutoff and you cannot add people in Medicaid um, any longer who, who don't meet the Medicaid, the, the traditional Medicaid right. standards. So there are Republicans saying, eek, I have a lot of people in my state who like their insurance under Medicaid. Any sense how that's going to go? Or?
7: You know, we, we say this commonly in the, in the conservative world. We say it's really hard to take something back once you've given it to people. Yes. But it really is. I mean, politically, it is very, very difficult to claw back some kind of a benefit that the government gives to people once it's been given. And it's very easy to campaign. It's very easy to get up at a rally and talk about how you're going to repeal this and you're going to repeal that and everybody cheers and everybody votes for you. It's very difficult to pull it back. And so I'm, I'm not optimistic that we will ever see anything approaching a full repeal of sort of every element of Obamacare. And I think that the, the Medicare expansion falls into that category. So I think the best we can hope for is not that you say to that population, you're no longer going to have this available to you. I think the best we can hope for is actually transforming that entitlement system to actually to where it actually works better and is more efficient by giving the states more control and the federal government less control, by block granting it to the states, by letting the states innovate, telemedicine, all sorts of new things yeah. that are hard to do right now. So you've expanded the benefit to this population. It's probably impossible to claw it back, but it probably is possible to make it better, more efficient, dare I even say, less expensive.
1: Gee, I like that last part especially. Okay. Well, we only have you for two segments, and we have eight minutes here, and I do want to turn because the other big pressing thing, obviously, in Washington, everyone's been watching, uh, in addition to the effort to actually repeal Obamacare, has to do with the uh, omnibus budget. And this was the budget that was put together, um, actually – Donald Trump, we talked last week, we had a great guest on talking about the budget that Trump sent over, which um, is not what we're talking about now, which is the budget the House uh, came up with. And um, this is an omnibus budget that the House, which uh, in in short detail, instead of having a, a budget that covers all of the different... The, all this budget does is, is cover the uh, government's expenditures from now until at the end of September, September 30th. Yeah, think, September or,
7: 30th. They would argue that this is not a budget. They would argue that this is just an extension of an extension like of an extension, kind of. exactly, exactly. A
1: continuing resolution. So, But anyway, there were was a lot of expectation after Donald Trump won and after conservatives thought they had really, we have the day now, we have the House, we have the Senate, we have the White House, that we are going to see some significant changes. Changes that we're going to see some Republican uh, stalwarts standing up against some of the crazy spending the Democrats um, engage in. But where we are actually is the House passed it, the Senate passed it, and our President signed it on Friday. So we are at least the battle is over through September. And you know, I did a um, bunch of interviews last week on, on different media um, on this subject, and I thought in part I want to get into what you think about the omnibus Obama- thing, but I got the notion in part I think that Donald Trump was so stung, President Trump was so stung by not getting. The Obamacare deal that everyone thought was going to happen sooner. And it was a big battle. It was a public embarrassment. I I wondered if he just pulled back and pushing on different items or Republicans pulled back in Congress, in the House and Senate because they, they they wanted a victory. They wanted to avoid a shutdown. They wanted a victory more than they were willing to fight for all the, against all this big time spending. No, I
7: think you're right. I think they probably sort of wiped their brow and said, "Whew, you know, <laughs> we we got that past us." But I really think that that conservatives and particularly those who are big fans of President Trump should be more upset about this than they are about Obamacare because undoing Obamacare was always going to be extremely complicated. If you didn't think it was, you didn't really understand. Uh when you actually have the leverage of of the government's going to run out of money on so and so date, you have a lot of power. You have a lot of leverage, and 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 the president really let everyone down. I think whatever your thing was. I mean, if you were counting on him to slash the 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 budget for EPA or the Department of Energy, if you were planning on him slashing the Department of Education, if you were planning on him, you know. Uh, not funding Planned Parenthood or something, yeah, (laughs) or getting funding for a wall for Pete's sake, you know, one of his biggest promises. None of that happened. Literally none of that happened. Now, in fairness, they did here and there cut about $12 billion in spending, but that's just like a rounding error in the federal budget right now. So I really think people should be more upset about the deal that Republicans just agreed to on spending. Now, this will all come back again around September 30th, and, and you know, the Republicans are saying that's when we're really going to really fight these battles. Well, let's see. Let's let let let's just see what happens. People should also understand that we have this very strange system where the president does a budget and it means nothing. It's really Congress's budget that matters.
1: Yeah. You know, um, on the subject of this omnibus budget, uh, there were just I, – I know many conservatives – you alluded to a couple of the issues. Many conservatives thought, well, in the big issues that Donald Trump ran on, we're going to end sanctuary cities – we're going to end—you um, know, we're going to have the wall. I, they couldn't understand. I think they, they, I think many Americans looked at Congress and said, if anything you ran on, and if anything right. that galvanized us to, you know, show up in swing states and knock on doors, it was these kinds of issues. And I think they're just—yeah, uh, there was there was a concern about fighting. I will say, though, the defenders of the budget point out that we do have a looming, serious threat from North Korea— we did get increased um, spending. In fact, I have my notes right here. Okay, can't remember numbers in my head, but Trump requested thirty billion in military spending. The bill gave him fifteen billion, with a two point five billion withheld unless until he comes up with a plan to defeat ISIS, which I. I <laughs> anyway, I I do feel like, though, that was a victory, and it's a victory that the Democrats truly hate. They never want to fund the military uh, more than they have to. So I think that was a bit of a victory, and I think they'd say in the context of where we are in the world, you know, we got something.
7: There's certainly an argument to be made about increasing military spending. I don't share it. I'm kind of an outlier when it comes to military spending, so we probably don't want to spend a whole lot of time there. But I, I do think people who have really trusted Donald Trump are, are at the early stages right now of sort of reality beginning to dawn on them. Because remember, Trump's whole case for the election was, I can do what no one else can do. These politicians have been promising they were going to make these deals, and they can't do it, but I am the world's foremost deal maker, and I can bring them to the table, I can get it done, da-da-da-da-da. And so far we've seen really no evidence of that. It turns out this stuff is really, really hard, and, and Mr. Trump, for all his good intentions, is a novice. And it's harder than he thought it was.
1: He's a novice, and I'll say something else. I didn't say it in the Obamacare thing, but after the Obamacare thing got through the House, got to the Senate, so it looks like, okay, we might have something, he made a comment to the Canadian prime minister it was, essentially saying, Australian, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Essentially saying, gee, maybe your system is better. He alluded to maybe kind of some big government health care is a good thing. And I'm getting to my point, and I've said it many times before, I think President Trump loves America, and I appreciate that about him because I don't think our previous president did. But he's not an ideologue. He doesn't have a, a rooted sense of principles in the Constitution. Or any other place I can see. So he just looks for solutions that sound like they work. And that can lead you into all sorts of mess.
7: It absolutely can. It depends on who you're listening to. And for a lot of us, you know, my, you, know, you look at these early appointments he made, which were free market conservative all-stars. They really were. Yeah. I mean, I was blown away by the quality of the appointments. But if the people who really have his ear are his Democrat children, Jared and Ivanka, okay, if they're the ones who have his ear – he is very malleable. I mean, he is like the last person that said something that sounded good to him wins. And I, that's what I think we should be concerned about.
1: I'm very concerned about it. And I actually especially am concerned about Ivanka's presence in the White House. Yeah. I, I really am. I don't do with that. Okay. Well, we have less than a minute and a half here. I do want to turn very quickly. We're speaking, if you just tuned in, uh, to Tom Giovannetti, who's the president of IPI, Institute for Policy Innovation. And you've written a piece about, this is a Quick change of subject, but I want to have you quick tell our listeners, if you can, in a one minute. There is t- I went to okay I went to Congressman Burgess's town hall and I can't tell you how many people got up to say the FCC is going to take away internet freedom they're doing something really horrible and you got to stop them so what is going on with the FCC and this regular regulatory change being discussed
7: Listeners need to understand okay that everything they're hearing about how the internet is going to the free and open internet's going to disappear and all that it's all complete BS unfortunately it's a campaign from the left for heavy regulation They don't trust corporations. They don't like the fact, you know, we, the internet in the United States is largely privately owned. It's owned by companies, okay? And the left doesn't like companies. They don't trust them. They think corporations are like an alien invading force, (laughs) you know, that came from outer space. And so they want the internet to essentially be owned and controlled by the government. That's what they want. And so they're constantly stirring up fear uncertainty and doubt about corporate ownership what the FCC is doing is getting rid of heavy Obama regulation of the internet before it ever takes effect they're getting rid of it before it has a chance to really mess up the internet and it's a good thing and it's keeping a campaign promise
1: Tom Giovannetti can't thank you no thanks for coming in thanks Debbie we are at the end of our segment do come back in the second hour I have my right view roundtable my millennial right view roundtable I have Drew Wicker and Grant Wolf here whole lot more coming up don't go away